0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hello. Hello. How are you? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles, California. And I'm very pleased to have Azarine Vandervleet Ulumi back on the program for a second time. She is celebrating the publication of a new novel called Savage Tongues. It's available from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. The last time I spoke with Azarine on this program, she was out on tour for her novel Call Me Zebra, also published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. It won the Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction and the John Gardner Award. It was also long-listed for the Penn Open Book Award. Azarine Vandervliet-Alumi is the recipient of a Whiting Writers Award, and she was a National Book Foundation Five Under Thirty-five honoree for her debut novel, Fra Keeler, which was published by Dorothy. So, an auspicious beginning to her literary career, to say the least, and I'm very, very happy to have her back on this show and to get a chance to talk to her, about Savage Tongues, her new novel. That conversation is coming up in just a minute. Today's episode is made possible by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, publisher of the novel Embassy Wife, by best-selling author Katie Crouch. Oprah Daly calls Embassy Wife, quote, comical and cool, a smart, sparkling novel that is one part social satire, one part travelogue. Embassy Wife is set in Namibia, in Africa, in the United States Foreign Service. It tells the tale of two women abroad searching for the truth about their husbands and their country. Kirkus Reviews calls it, quote, a sharp, funny, page-turning romp. Embassy Wife by Katie Crouch, available now from FSG. Okay, so today's guest is Azarine Vandervleet-Illumi. Once again, her new novel is called Savage Tongues, out there now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. I enjoyed this book. I greatly enjoyed this conversation. Azarine is so smart and such a generous guest, and I wish this conversation could have gone on longer, but I think she had to go teach if my memory serves me correctly. So, you know, I'll take what I can get. A wonderful time talking with Azarine Vliet illumi Um... I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here she is, folks, one more time. This is Azarine Vandervleet-Ulumi.
1: I am obviously a big fan of women writers who like use stream of consciousness, like Virginia Woolf or even Rachel Cusk, and the way that time kind of circles and loops in texts by those writers, and um, Marguerite Duratu, Clarice Lispector. And um, I feel like, that aesthetic choice which is more a structural choice about how you manage duration and the passage of time in a novel works really well when you're trying to actually capture the experience the lived experience of a traumatic event that has a really long afterlife and i was interested in the way that trauma language and memory interact with one another And how um, the way that we talk about trauma changes over time as our identities evolve. And then in turn, our memory of what happened also begins to shift. And I think that there are all three of those things, right? Trauma, memory, and language are so mercurial. They're so amoeba-like and chameleon-like. They're always shifting and transforming and we can exert pressure on them. Um, And and it just kind of highlighted to me how alive... um, The trauma can can feel to us, even 20, 30, 40 years after it's happened, it's always kind of a story that's unfolding alongside the rest of our lives and the other stories that we're learning to tell about ourselves and each other. And so I wanted the book to kind of reenact that rather than um, tell it in a way that's more finite.
0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Do we ever really get over anything?
1: (laughs) I don't think, I don't think so. I feel like, well, you pointed to the kind, the question of the cultural inheritance in the book. And I feel like, I've been thinking about this a lot. When we come from cultures that are far older than the American New World culture, there is a way in which time is so circular and it just unfolds and you're aware of the layering of the past and the present and and the future in a very deep way that can also be oppressive. Like in America, there's always this sense of potential and newness and the next thing you could get off the ground. But I think that that also then informs the way we think about trauma and healing in ways that aren't helpful. Like we want it to be finite. We want it to be fixable. And I don't think healing works that way. Like healing is an ongoing process, especially when we're talking about the kind of trauma that brings you really close to your own mortality or that completely shifts your perception of reality from one moment or one year to the next, right? And that doesn't mean that you can't learn to like live with it with grace and dignity and resilience, but there, there isn't, it's an ambiguous and unfolding process, right? (laughs) Like you can't put a period at the end of it and be like, this is me before this is me after.
0: Yeah. And I think the issue of language too, you know, you mentioned that as like kind of like, what was it? It was trauma language and history and memory. And, and memory yeah and yeah. like it's like the the the, the three big things that, that i think this book is contending with and i think of i guess i think of all of it i think of trauma language and memory in my own experience and how it isn't often depicted um as acutely as you've done here how confusing it can be mm. to be like to, to know that you've lived through something, but to not know exactly how to characterize it or language it. Like usually these things as they're presented in the culture are kind of cut and dry. It's like I was assaulted or I was, um, you know, molested as a child or something that's just like there's just no question about how to perceive it, at least in the, at least for the reader. Um, but in my own experience, like, I can sometimes sit around wondering, like, well, does this qualify? Mm-hmm. And and is my memory reliable? Am I, have I embellished this through time? Am, you know what I'm saying? Like, I think that this book raises a lot of those kinds of questions deftly. Like, the way that, like, I'll give an example um, so that listeners can maybe understand. Like, the protagonist in your book is going back to Marbella, Spain where she was in a relationship with a significantly older man when she was seventeen, and there is an intersection in her memory, and I think in her ex- in her lived experience when it happened all those years ago of desire uh, and abuse, <laughs> like the territory gets murky, you know what I'm saying mm-hmm. like and she I can you know in the book she's trying to sift through those memories and make sense of the fact that there was authentic desire in her with respect to this man this 40 something year old man who took advantage of her when she was 17 but also like this terrible trauma um and sense of violation that's complicated Mm -hmm. and we don't usually get that kind of complexity it's usually like bad person person who got abused thing that happened and there isn't often either admission or reckoning with the confusing parts of so many of these kinds of experiences. You know what I'm saying?
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's part of, I don't know. I mean, there's so much to unpack there. You know, I feel like the um, public discourse doesn't actually make a lot of room for nuance and for complexity and for holding two thoughts in our heads at once, let alone multiple conflicting emotions about. An event that occurred many years ago where memory then can be fallible and and be questioned. Um, But I think in in this context in in the narrator's experience, she definitely was sexually initiated by Omar and felt an attraction to him before he even took advantage and noticed that she was vulnerable to him in that way. And she has a very hard time completely dismissing any completely like letting go of her sense of agency in the matter, and also struggles with guilt because of that admission of of pleasure and desire, that she was at once culpable and also innocent, and that those two things existed together. And what makes it even more complicated is that before she goes to Spain and this relationship begins, she witnesses her brother in America be attacked by um, by someone and he nearly loses his life to a hate crime that's ethnically motivated. And I think that there's also that complexity of her wanting to self-destruct after having seen him um, be almost beaten to death on the sidewalk after school and not feeling a sense of safety anywhere. And it's, so it's not just the desire that, you know, she's coming into herself sexually at 17 that she experiences. It's also, um, this other darker atmospheric kind of electric charge that runs through the novel, which is, well, I'm not, I'm not safe anywhere. I'm, I may as well, um, you know, put myself in harm's way. And, And so there's the survivor's guilt toward the brother, too, that's informing the relationship kind of in ways that are subconscious to her until she returns when she's 40 and starts to piece these things back together and realize that, you know, violence between it's not so clear cut for her between the victim and the aggressor, and that there is not just a web of enablers that that make way for this relationship to unfold, but there's also an entire web of like geopolitical, ethnic, racial and migration patterns that, um, kind of planted the seeds for her to, to sort of not know how to protect herself. Right. Um, so it's, I feel like the narrator is always like zooming out and trying to look at it from the most panoramic perspective because she, is confused. Right. And she doesn't want to pretend that it isn't confusing and that all these things are unrelated.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think about, I, I don't know, I guess I, I was the, the, the word that just came to mind was, uh, vengeance or wanting to like make it right, which I think is like maybe the baser impulse of a lot of these kinds of tales um or maybe like maybe it's like the baser impulse that a lot of readers um you know might want to see unfold on the page like uh, there's a part of me that's like i want her to see omar you know like Mm. i I want her to have like an eye to eye with him and like make it right or like go into like uh kill bill mode or something (laughs) (laughs) um but That's not, again, that's not often how these things play out. And I thought too, you know, you talk about this, this, um, air of menace. I couldn't help but notice and correct me if this was not your intent or if I'm misreading it, but, uh, there are, there is a a kind of like almost like a horror fiction vibe, Mm -hmm. like an undercurrent, you know, Mm -hmm. not super, not super pervasive or, um you know, front and center, but there, and like kind of giving you the creeps and like waiting for someone to kind of jump out from behind, uh, the door or something. You know, I had that feeling all throughout the reading and there's a, like, um, I hope I'm not giving away too much. There's a recurring visual in this book of a wild, like a baby wild boar. (laughs) Mm. Um, that uh azaru am i or arazu i'm uh am i pronouncing that right Arezu? arazu yeah. arazu yeah she is recalling um you know a time when she was with omar all those years ago and he would go hunting what he captured a, a baby wild boar
1: yeah with bare hands and then sticks it in a backpack that he forces her to wear on the motorcycle on the way back down from yeah the mountain. and yeah. so there's
0: this like awful feeling of this trapped baby wild boar in a backpack on her back and then she keeps re-seeing it and um there's almost something Lynchian about that. Just like you know, can you talk a little bit about those decisions uh creatively? Yeah. And if like am I on the right track with regard to Absolutely. horror
1: Absolutely, yeah. I mean so for me it's kind of like all of my fiction deals in the speculative to some degree, and in this book there's that that kind of psychological thriller, horror dimension that isn't it's like you said it's not front and center it's more subtle and it's the walls keep shape-shifting or or you know moving and there's always this sense of unease that's more atmospheric and you can't quite put your finger on it but I think that it's really about the ghosts that haunt us and the ways that really her PTSD is kind of a function of what um, the asymmetrical power dynamic that her and Omar had and that she's returns to the apartment precisely because she wants to maybe not so much take revenge on him but reassert her power over that space by knowing that she has the strength to actually confront the space of the apartment where things happened between them, where there was no witness. Um, and of course, when she steps into it, all of the cruelty and the brutality of their relationship is still there in the walls. And so it, they start to kind of, yeah, exude the trauma in some ways. And, and I always think of the way that, you know, Toni Morrison, who's one of my favorite writers, um, thinks about the, the haunted quality of spaces or the speculative kind of energy in literature and how it's, it's able to capture the ghosts of history. It's able to capture the trauma of history and um, kind of the the political dimensions of our subject positions in life um, in a way that realism can't quite get there. Um, it just kind of falls a little too too short. Um, so yeah, that that was an important aspect aspect of it, and also just when you're writing, I don't know, just being in that kind of imagery is, it makes the writing process a lot more mysterious to me as a writer and, and therefore much more pleasurable, you know?
0: The, uh, like one of the things I noticed, you talked about the looping quality of uh, trauma and the way that the, you know, trauma, memory, language, the intersection of these things can create kind of a is that right? Like a looping quality to the experience of lived trauma and remembered trauma. And uh, like one of the things that I noticed in the book is repetition mm-hmm. and physicality. Like you continually go back to, like, there are repeti- repeated thoughts or memories, like the bore or um, bodily feelings and sensations constricted in the throat, you know, like Mm -hmm. the, the way that these things manifest in the body, especially when you put yourself back in an environment where the original trauma occurred, um, that part of it, like that interior aspect of it, not just psychologically, but physically interior part of it, like was really, um, pronounced in the book. Mm-hmm. And that's, I guess that's, I mean, that squares with, with how these things are lived, especially in like triggering situations. You know, it really is, um, like an almost like overwhelmingly physical experience, even if that experience is like invisible to most casual observers.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think what I'm more and more, what I'm interested in, in, in is kind of what it, like, this question of, like, how do we write novels that actually approximate life? Like, that the the way that it's written and the way that it's experienced by the reader isn't different from just everyday physical experiences that we have or psychological experiences that we have being alive in, in this very strange world. Um, and I think, you know... The, the looping quality is really there to kind of capture the that effect of the forever being bereaved by something that happens that we don't yet have language for. And the whole novel is really about searching for that language and what that process of trying to find the language looks like across 20 years and how her understanding of how to organize these, this unspeakable pain into words shifts and breaks open when she re-enters the space finally and, um, has a physical memory because she had blocked it out or become numb to it or ambivalent towards it, um, because of the geographic and temporal distance, um, you know, it's interesting because some there was a review um, recently in NPR that kind of was, um, I think, you know, deeply gendered in some ways and actually said um, used a historical argument to say that the book uh, basically, you know, yes, it's about rape, but it's also a book that's making a lot out of a little. And I think that's a very telling kind of, response you know that wants to shut the conversation down back into a space that you were describing where things are finite or um, there has to be a kind of um, maybe not even space for acknowledging what's happened. It's like a kind of form of revictimization to talk about books written by women that address the deep trauma and the deep afterlife of sexual abuse. Um, in those terms, you know, that, that kind of, um, don't give room for the, the ambient quality and the lingering kind of emotional hangover that you have as a result of it. Um, so yeah, I think that it's just trying to build as much space as possible for that conversation in the book.
0: Okay. So I want to ask you about like, as an extension of what you just said, the relationship uh, between Arazu and Omar, she's 17, he's in his 40s. There's a huge power imbalance. He takes advantage of her, um, like emotionally and psychologically abuses her uh, more than there is, unless I'm totally misremembering it or forgetting to remember it, uh, like some huge like pyrotechnically violent interaction. Am I missing it?
1: No, no, you're not. You're not missing it. Um, I think that it is the, the horror is psychological and it's emotional and yeah, you're absolutely right. There's no grotesque violation that happens in the novel. That's just strictly physical, right? It's an ongoing kind of chronic emotional and psychological, um, situation that they're in that feels very violating to her, especially as she becomes more and more aware over time of just how powerless she was in relation to him because of their age gap, but also because of their sexual experiences, right? Um, So it's very complicated.
0: But it also is an interesting creative choice. Like, I don't mean to reduce it, but I mean, you know, from the perspective of writing and coming up with these characters in this story, it thwarts expectations a little bit with respect to popular culture, at least. I think, you know, most times these stories get told, you know, especially if there's a a kind of flashback situation happening where someone's reckoning with something in retrospect, there's some huge moment, you know? Mm -hmm. And I found it a very interesting choice to not have that and to have it be this psychological, emotional, like teasing out of experience, like trying to figure out like, A, what happened? B, how do I measure it? Mm -hmm. Um, That feels truer to life to me, or at least truer to life more often than not. Because, you know, the question that comes to mind for me is like, well, who who gets to say who's traumatized? You know what I'm saying? Like who gets to have trauma? What's the dividing line between like, well, that was a crappy summer. And like, this is trauma. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I yeah. I, th- I think about that in my own life, you know, not in the same context, but just like, I sometimes wonder how much lingering difficulty I'm entitled to when it comes to the shitty things that have happened to me in my life. Like what's yeah. the what's the statute of limitations? And like when I compare my cushy life to most lives on this planet, you know how you get into those kinds of arguments with yourself where it's like, well, wait a minute. I've got it so much easier than so many other people. Like maybe I need to just let this go. Or do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like like that's a real human conundrum is like, well, wait, unless it's super, super explicitly awful, um, there, there often is like some nuance to this and some gray area. Like how do you decide when it's, when the trauma is real and like you're quote unquote like entitled to all that comes with that you know
1: yeah i think these are important questions and i think that in for the purposes of arzu's retelling of her experience there's no doubt that the trauma is very real to her you know she struggles with insomnia she's unable to experience a ton of pleasure for many many years in her life through college um, she's she sort of you know there's those scenes where she's constantly showering you know in the dorm in college while everybody else is kind of out doing their thing and having their their sex escapades um, that she can't quite participate in and um, and at the same time you know she's also a very intellectual and like fiercely resilient character who's a pragmatist and all these parts of her coexist, and there are moments of of total ambivalence, of total confusion, of um, especially when she's also entering that even more complicated landscape that we really don't talk about in public discourse, where maybe these more confusing experiences, where sexual pleasure and some form of violation are mixed together, can then later... Also influence our sexual fantasies and how for you know some women it's a form of of agency to actually um, you know reclaim that and and to be unapologetic about it and she's very you know aware of of all of these ranges of possibilities and how they're all true just because one is true doesn't make the other one less true and I think that's the the ambiguity of that is what's difficult for some readers or might be difficult for some readers because it doesn't quite settle on it's this or it's that or I'm allowed this and I'm therefore not allowed that and she's also really acutely aware again this is something that I think has been somewhat challenging for readers is of the layers of her identity and the intersections of her identity and the way that what happens to her brother and, you know, the father's absence, um, the crisis in Iran, the way that they migrate, the way that then they encounter um, violence in America and a sense of rejection and unwelcoming, just that's the baseline of her DNA, right? And then what happens with Omar gets layered on top of that and complicates that. And so there's layers and layers of of um, guilt and perhaps even deep shame that I think is the knot in her stomach that's constantly coming up when she returns to the apartment. And so when she looks at the layering and intersection of all of these things with the ongoing nature of settler colonialism and all of the discursive violence, the Islamophobia, you know, um, that are still happening, right? And she's almost 40 when she returns, then... I think it becomes kind of she feels charged with a responsibility to look at the summer that she had with Omar within a kind of continuum of political, cultural and intimate violence, rather than only and only be fixated on the interactions between the two of them and I think it's that zooming out that widening of the aperture on all these different levels like cultural political sexual that's very challenging for readers but I really think we just need more nuance when we're talking about these things and that healing requires it there's no way you know that's the paradox of at times in interviews um, hearing somebody say, well, why doesn't she just heal and get over it? Well, we can't in a climate where we're being forced to be finite. And, you know, just say, I'm a survivor. And then that's where the conversation ends. And it's even hard to get that conversation started, let alone, well, what does it mean to live with that? And what kind of a survivor are you? right? And what's your relationship to your survivorship? Are you even comfortable with using that word, right? It's just so complex. And I just, with this book, wanted to, I don't know, make, break it open a little bit and have that complexity, um, even if it's polarizing, because we just want to revert back to this good, bad, you know, um, politics versus personal, they're different. They really aren't when you're, you know, a minority or a woman or both. Right.
0: Well, and you talk about complexity, there's space in this book and in this character to consider all the different intersections that you were just talking about, personal, political, cultural, historical, as they apply to Omar, Mm -hmm. you know, so you talk about how all these different traumas, like, like overlapping traumas in her life, like the, the, the absent father, Who, uh, you know, the sense of abandonment that she feels as a result of that. And then the displacement, you know, caused by migration, the violence visited upon her brother, which is like super traumatic and destabilizing. And then Omar, all of it. But then, you know, this book also considers like what, at least a little bit, what happened to Omar to lead him into this position where he thought it was okay to have this kind of a relationship with a 17 year old when he's in his 40s. And how might cultural and historical pressures come to bear on him? How might those same kinds of pressures be causing her to view him in a certain way? You know, that kind of complexity needs to be mentioned as well, because that's certainly not something we see a lot of. And I can imagine how that might make some readers feel uncomfortable.
1: Absolutely. You know, it's Like, it's not that she's not tempted to take revenge on him. I think she even fantasizes about it at one point in the book. I can't quite remember, to be honest. But um, really what she's, the real revenge for her is to, you know, that last line, to transform cruelty back into love and and to kind of have, reach a place where she can be emotionally generous toward him, which doesn't mean to forget, or to forgive, or to be complicit in, right? Um, But to look at what it meant for him to be a teenager in the Lebanese Civil War, his own father disappears, no one ever knows what happens, and then is left to take care of the women in his life under extreme pressure. And think, you know, Araza begins to think about how he might still be emotionally 17, which is when the most disruptive kind of trauma happened in his life and she recognizes him as emotionally 17 when they're spending time together they have fun together he's a liberating presence in some ways from the very depressive kind of almost neglectful environment that she comes out of you know they they go on adventures and um I don't know do lots of activities right and she was kind of in a different shut down kind of environment with the mother that had become overly protective after what happens to the brother and won't even really let her leave the house to go to CVS. Right. Um, so there's all of those dynamics. And I think healing requires that. It requires some kind of a, I don't know, reach toward the aggressor emotionally or that's a move into the celestial or the spiritual. I don't really know, but it was the only place I could see this book going.
0: No, I think it's, I mean, it's refreshing to me. And I think it's, there's a lot of deep wisdom in that approach, despite what we're often fed by the culture, especially I think of our political culture, which is like American political culture, especially on the right, but also on the left sometimes too, has such, um such a tendency towards vengeance and really like stark dichotomous depictions of good and evil. And Mm -hmm. I remember I'm thinking, why am I, I'm thinking of Karl Rove uh, back at the dawn of the, the long war, you know, that's just now hopefully wrapping up in the Middle East and how he was like mocking Democrats for wanting to psychoanalyze the terrorists, you know, who perpetrated 9-11 9-11 and wanting to understand them essentially like, like any diversion from this kind of cartoonish understanding of them was considered weak and despicable and like the butt of a joke essentially. And I remember just being like, no, that's what we, we should do. Like if you don't understand why these people would do something like this, we you know, I don't know. It just, I think that it's nice to make some space for that. Because I I agree with you. I don't think you can really heal or prevent or move through something like this in the absence of that kind of difficult reckoning and and attempt at Mm -hmm. a deeper understanding of he or she or whatever group of people who caused pain.
1: Yeah, it is a very radical thing to do. And I, I agree with you about the kind of culture wars and the political landscape we're in. And I mean, really the devastation that we're seeing in afghanistan and the kind of total lack of accountability and responsibility that is unfolding before our eyes in this retreat from afghanistan and the abandonment of so many people and it it's like a desertion that's really shameful and not necessarily even being examined in light of that very error you just pointed out that it was, you know, that kind of vindictive energy only leads to further destruction for everybody involved. Right. Like there isn't nothing but suffering has come from that. Um, And unfortunately I think that as usual, there's going to be a kind of historical amnesia that gets um, inserted into the political rhetoric to, to kind of, excuse the withdrawal in this manner you know but we're getting we're, we're jumping <laughs> train tracks here um i think there's so many people who are working on post-colonial healing somatic healing so many kind of um you know poets of color like audrey lord who and and lots of writers of color who are working now who are br- sort of talking about the importance of this kind of um, looking at the somatic lived experience of of people and acknowledging the depth of of trauma and the way that um, having these kinds of intersectional identities and the ways that all these traumas get folded into you generationally, right, um, across like factors like class and race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, right? All of these things that there is a nuanced language that does exist. It's like a transgressive resistance language that's always really existed, but it's it's not really part of the national rhetoric, right? Because it wouldn't be useful. It wouldn't be in line with what's kept America going. It's machinery of war and it's kind of, remarkable ability to always manufacture an enemy really and i i can love america and recognize that at the same time right that's another way in which we're not allowed to hold two thoughts in our heads at once
0: oh well, yeah like i mean i think word that comes to mind is nuance and just the way that nuance uh can be so easily weaponized against he or she who is trying to deal with complexity like i guess the point i'm trying to make is that our political culture is much easier to manipulate when you're working in binaries and in bellicose rhetoric and mm-hmm. fear fear language. You know, if you start to say, "Well, wait a minute, let's try to understand this and let's try to understand that and let's consider the fact that we have a history of uh, you know, uh, imperial behavior, you know, you start to get into any of that and then you just have some, you know, person who gets up on a microphone and shouts at you and says that you're weak and that we need to seek mm-hmm. revenge. You know, oh,
1: yeah. And it's synonymous with being anti American, right? Um, one person whose thinking was really important to me while writing Savage Tongues was actually the Buddhist nun Pema Chodron. Oh, yeah. And she, she, and I think a lot of the ways in which Arzu heals in the book are informed by that kind of untethered openness. And Pema Chodron has this beautiful concept of smiling at our fears in order to become fearless. And, you know, that's completely antithetical to the cultural norm in in the States, which is your fear is an indicator that you must defend yourself and attack immediately, right? So it's a very big inversion. Um, But, you know, I don't know.
0: Well, but maybe telling these kinds of stories is a way to, in whatever small way, to nudge this sort of um, reckoning with complexity into the culture. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like as a corrective, like we need more of it. And it's just so, it's a kind of obscene to me that people who would try to do such a thing, especially when it pertains to matters of like great importance, would be like mocked and caricatured and demeaned and called un-American. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. that, that's a big problem. And, uh, you know, I sort of get in a crude, like especially media-based way, why it would be a hard hard thing to to do but we've got to do it and you know you you mentioned spiritual and it's funny that you do because it was occurring to me when you were talking earlier about um you know arazu and being 17 and arriving in marbella and i am pronouncing that correct right it is marbella the double l Mm -hmm. it's yeah yeah you got it um She arrives in Marbella uh, like in the aftermath of this savage beating that her brother has taken um, after school at the hands of a skinhead shortly after arrival in the States. So that event squares, I think, with most people's understanding of trauma most explicitly of anything that happened in the book um, because it's so savage. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think something like this happens to you at any point in life, but maybe especially when you're an adolescent, unless you're really firmly rooted or you've had really good teaching, I think it can cause a spiritual crisis. And I think I'm seeing this with regard to COVID. Um, maybe I'm. Maybe it's just part of the human condition, you know, writ large uh, in the times that we live in, but certain things seem to exacerbate it. And I guess the point that I, I'm getting at is that When you're at a place in life whether it's age um understanding spiritual understanding however you want to characterize it and you have to suddenly deal with trauma or something really dark and awful happening it can lead to like really deep anguish (laughs) and like an anguish that maybe can be hard for people characterize or even like begin to reckon with or wrap their head around or put language to. Do you see what I'm getting at? Like, I, I just think that a lot of times this is something we don't talk about, the ways in which our spiritual traditions or our spiritual language fail us or we fail it when we're trying to grapple with the difficult stuff of life, like our, our deep suffering. Do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah,
1: I do. I mean, it's when things like that happen, it's like your stomach drops a hundred floors, and then, you know, there's all this space inside of you that wasn't there before. And of course, there's a contending with it that requires enormous courage. Um, and I think, I don't know, it's so transformative fundamentally to your sense of self-reality, others, intimacy, um, your ability to, to love and care for yourself and other people, that I don't know what the alternative is, you know, than to, you know, try to come up with some language for hope that isn't so simple and just a nostalgia for going back to being, what one was before the event, um, that disrupted and changed everything. And I think for me, and I think for the narrator, you know, um, and, and, you know, a lot of the, you know, the, the event with the brother is based on a real life event, um, for me and it's language kind of became my spiritual, you know, of, existing inside of the capaciousness of language which can be like weaponized against us but it can also be this tremendous thing that bears witness and can just expand and expand and expand if we are willing to inhabit inside of words long enough and trust language to kind of expand our sense of self and the way that we talk about what happened right Um, and that it's so powerful that it can retroactively change the way that we see it. It's not that, like, the cruelty of what happened is diminished um, in any way. It's, in fact, it's in, like, stark relief by the end of the novel to Arazu and to myself as the one who wrote the book, but it's kind of how much space was created in holding that and how the, that gesture of, of love is so much more powerful than the gesture of, of cruelty and that they can, they're always in relationship with each other, right? It's the only way that it can be, yeah, reckoned with.
0: It's not entirely dissimilar to talk therapy, (laughs) Um, you know, which is a, which is a common, healthy, um, response to trauma, you know, people receive therapy all the time to try to grapple with this stuff. And many of them are not writers, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. you know? So I think when you, cause I've had this experience, like both of the novels that I've written were written out of trauma slash grief. Like maybe that's just the writer that I am. Like I can only, I only have the energy to do a book if I'm trying to grapple with something like that difficult, but I don't go to therapy And I don't feel like an urgent need to, I'm sure I could benefit, but like, I guess what I'm saying is that giving it space, doing the hard and like often excruciating work of looking at it closely, you know, Mm -hmm. and like really sifting through and slowing down where it, you know, where it hurts, you know, that, that whole thing and giving it language that's not entirely dissimilar to sitting in a room with a therapist and talking it out. And getting to a place where you can language it, and where you can look at it somewhat objectively, uh, you know, and, and just look at it, just just smile at your fears. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. like like have that moment of kind of like eye contact with the with the monster under your bed, um, for lack of a better way of putting it. Like, I don't know. I think there's some similarity with a book of this kind and with the the talk therapy approach. Am I? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, she. The narrator does also talk about therapy and the ways that the therapy also fails, right? Like the writing is the thing that doesn't fail her, but the therapy kind of only gets her so far. But it is similar in the fact that her healing also is happening in conversation with her best friend, right? Which is a form of them telling their stories to one another and, you know, revisiting how each of their stories shifted the other's perception of what happened to them, and that kind of community friendship, the discourse between these two women is, I guess, also a form of talk therapy. You know, it's that the power of of conversation.
0: OK, so this is a book. This is the, like a big aspect of the book that we haven't addressed yet, but you just touched on it is female friendship. Um, I want to say you dedicated this book to your queer family. Is mm-hmm. that, is that right? That, like, I think that's how you put it. Yeah. Uh, um, but, and then I think this is alluded to in the book as well, where, um, you know, Arazu is, I have to keep looking at my notes cause I keep wanting to call her Azaru. <laughs> I You know, I, it's
1: funny. A lot of people flip it around. <laughs> I just, yeah,
0: I don't know what it is. Like, I think it's because I almost did it once and now I'm scared I'm going to keep doing it. But, um, when Arazu is reflecting on her college years, And this kind of second family, you know, like her chosen family of friends was this kind of motley crew of misfits, you know, and they don't necessarily share like exact identical cultural or, you know, personal experiences, but what they do share, I think are what a sense of dislocation, a deep sense of otherness, a sense of lack of safety, you know, you could probably expand on this better than I could. But I thought that pretty poignant, you know, the ways in which people who might seem to come from really disparate backgrounds on the surface, you know, you talk about like Ellie, the character, the female best friend, um, like a Jew from Jerusalem, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, befriending an Iranian, um, you know, American, British, like not necessarily the most on the surface, like likely match, but like they have such a deep connectivity uh, can you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that and the ways in which, yeah. you know, you, you personally found, like find refuge in your friends, um, in this way, but also, you know, how, uh, your character does as well.
1: Yeah. I I love what you said about the motley crew of misfits because <laughs> it kind of reminded me also in Call Me Zebra, the narrator goes and finds a crew of misfits to hang out with. Um, and I hadn't quite made that connection. But yeah, I think the friends are so unlikely on the surface. I mean, there's also um, Sahar, who's Palestinian and queer and wants to go back to the West Bank, um, kind of is unable to stay in, in America. There's Sam, who transitions, um, who's from the South. So they're, you know, Muslim, Jewish and Christian. Um and yet, they have, you know, this deep understanding of one another because some of their traumas of displacement, like you said, or this search for home, um, is something that they have in common, and they can kind of understand each other without even using words. But then they're also all writers, and so they have that in common, and they all exist in language. They all speak, you know, with the exception of Sam, multiple languages, and. It's um you know it was inspired by by my group of friends and it is dedicated to my queer chosen family. So in a sense the book is is also a celebration of you know when the families we're born into aren't able to show up for us, the families that we choose kind of go above and beyond but are also just so remarkable because it's just surprising to find that right i mean ali and Arazu go on these recovery journeys together like Ellie is not going to let her go to marbella alone and Aruzu likewise doesn't let her go back to palestine and israel alone and they try to go back with sahar um and they call it like returning to each other's open air prisons um and, and just kind of sitting there, right? Um, and just being like, hey, I see that you're suffering. And, and that that's in of itself so sufficient, right? right? That it shifts the needle for them. It moves the needle radically for each of them.
0: Um, Can I – I want to stop yeah. just so people – I think it would help listeners to understand Ellie a little bit more. This is a, a Jewish woman was raised Orthodox who is – pro-palestine like there's like there's like a um, right. there's like um you know the, the orthodox thing that she's she's no longer observing um but also her politics for a formerly orthodox jew from jerusalem are unorthodox <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know so you talk about like an open-air prison she's she's basically pushing back against the orthodoxy of her youth and like the prevailing orthodoxy of uh jewish political culture in recognizing the suffering of palestinians and advocating for their uh Mm -hmm. autonomy
1: yeah i mean she's also an intellectual who's you know a translator of palestinian literature and is you know her her acknowledgement of settler colonialism isn't just reactionary to her own upbringing and the ways that her queerness was um, led to her being disowned by her family. It's also uh, just, um, I don't know, like a broader examination that she's making of herself and the ways that her subjectivity, regardless of her queerness or her pro-Palestinianness is one of an implicated subject in the violence, right? Like she does not escape the fact that in, in regardless of her politics, like her identity is complicit in what's happening and that she has tremendous privilege, right. In, in shaping her discourse and voicing her, um, support for pro you know, Palestinians and, and her descent of the occupation, and she's navigating that with Sahar, who's Palestinian, and I think that the ways that each of them are able to look and examine at themsel- examine themselves in their own discourse, in their own language, and the parameters of it, the parts of their identity that are privileged and the parts of them that are underprivileged, right, because that's another nuance. We're not either this or that. There's parts of our identity that could be privileged, right, and parts that aren't, like even Arzu's father, who's white, but comes from extreme poverty in England, and is also raised um, with this sense of despair. Um, So all of them are kind of, I don't know, like looking at this web of selfhood, and how they, how complicated it is to be a self in the world. And how much responsibility is required of us when we're lending our support to others, especially if there's an asymmetry of power there too, right? Um, I could go on and on about this, but, you know, we've been talking for a while.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I want to ask you about gender um, as it pertains to interiority. Uh, And... I guess the issue of decolonization, but just this notion that there, are, you know, there aren't maybe as many books written that delve su- this deeply into female interiority, or at least not published. You know what I'm saying? Like we have a lot of books that are written from a, you know, especially a white male perspective, where guys go way deep, you know, and like and and often beautifully, you know, and in ways yeah. that are really nourishing and uh, enriching. But, you know, you are making, like, a very conscious creative choice to express female interiority um as it pertains to all the things that we've been talking about. Um Can you t- talk about that and, and why it was so important to you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I agree with you. Like, I, you know, love reading books that delve that deeply into male interiority, like, you know, Ben Lerner's work or Knausgaard, you know, Proust, like it goes on and on and and it's beautiful. And at the same time, pretty exclusive in the sense that there is a way in which the world accommodates male interiority, especially like male cisgendered interiority that um, it you know is specific that isn't necessarily extended to female interiority in the world or in literature on the page and so I think there isn't we we haven't been taught to have an appetite for female interiority and I'm seeing that even in in the way that that you know like I was saying the reviews around the book is is there is some resistance um, to the depth and insistence on her psyche and her explorations of it and then to the fact that that coexists in a novel of ideas right that it is still a f- fierce novel of ideas in which female interiority is privileged and also it's um, centered on queer friendship and then middle eastern bodies right so there's all of these ways in which it's doing things that are i think unusual you know um not an easy book to write but I'm really glad I wrote it I can't imagine it was I think a book that I needed to write in order to write the next book
0: I cannot relate to that more strongly like it's just in the way like there's no getting around it like you you did you try to avoid it I mean did you... oh
1: my god I wish <laughs> I could avoid it of course it's an excruciatingly vulnerable book
0: um yeah.
1: Of course I wish I could avoid it. But you
0: came but, to, you came to terms with it at some point.
1: Yeah, I mean I think that's just the yeah, the force of my own character I suppose. I can't avoid things even when I want to.
0: Yeah, and I think I almost think like the thing itself takes on a life of its own. Like it's just so front and center. It's just, you just cannot get around it. I had the same exact creative experience with the book that I just wrote. And um, it's just nice to know that I'm not the only person (laughs) who like, I think it's, I think it's actually common. I I can't imagine that it wouldn't be like, we all have to write about the big stuff that happens to us one way or another, right? If we're going to do this, like, I I say that it's
1: good to hear that you're not alone. You know, it's um, definitely likewise,
0: but, but. I will say this, I have often, and even recently had experiences with books that I've been reading where I feel a person resisting. It's the whole like slow down where it hurts thing. Like it's the best writing advice and it's merciless. Like it's just brutal to have to go through that where you're looking at something really difficult and just like staring, you know, just trying to grapple with it and see it clearly. Mm-hmm. And then render it on the page for somebody who has no context. You know, you're bringing somebody in who's coming in with zero knowledge of anything. Um, and I can often sense it strongly on the page when somebody is dancing around the thing, <laughs> or at least I think. Yeah. I, at least I think I can. You know, it's it's a very I mean, easy thing tempting.
1: to do. It's tempting to kind of stay in that glossy space and there's a lot of great writing that can do that and do it well um you know not every book needs to be such a heavy you know hitter but i think that i don't know i the other day i I was reading this old interview with joy williams in the paris review and she's like if we're going to if we're going to write america's as American writers, America's recklessness and it's ruthlessness and it's kind of unchecked optimism, then we need to do what Mark Twain said we should do, which is write with a pen that was warmed up in hell. And I was like, thank you, Joy Williams. That's exactly right. You know, um, yeah, just hats off to her
0: for writing with a pen that was warmed up in hell. Totally. Yeah, I get that. And I think, you know, we talk about all the, the spiritual stuff and, the, the, the creative choice you made to sort of humanize Omar and to have your narrator like grapple with his history and to bring that part of it in as, as an element of the complexity of the thing, uh, that and other stuff, all of it like in a package makes me think something that I often think, especially in the context of contemporary American insanity is that there's going to have to be a reckoning that that's like pretty radical in the way that we relate to each other, ourselves, our own interiority um and then like our eternity, <laughs> like mm-hmm. like you know like we it just feels like we have to evolve and quickly um
1: I mean, look, it's like the fall of Rome, I don't know, something's crumbling, right, and yeah. <laughs> I don't know what the alternative is than to kind of become radically self-aware.
0: Uh, do you think books can help us? I mean, you have to believe that books can help us get there if you're writing them, right? Or no?
1: I ha- I mean, yes, it's a, it's a requirement <laughs> um, to have that belief. I But I actually genuinely believe that, I mean, books can not only help us to come to terms with ourselves and bring us closer to home in a way, they also bear witness right um and storytelling is there to kind of as an act of like forewarning as well right like we recover and archive past tragedy as a way to kind of ask well how are we going to prevent this from happening again i mean that's one of the core questions that literature asks it's one of the most powerful ones
0: yeah yeah and I was reading about the fall of Rome just the other day. Um, Were you? Yeah. like <laughs> see. Like, it's in the air. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just like I I, I kind of stumbled into it. I didn't like even go out seeking it. But it, basically, the the thing that sticks with me is that the fall of Rome took 100 years. I mean, I, I'm taking whatever I read at face value. I think that's the case. Um, let's just assume it's true the question that I found myself asking is like, well, where are we right now on the continuum? Like, I don't know. Are it... we 20 years in? Yeah. 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 Where are we? <laughs> like, am I going to make it to the end of my life before the shit really <laughs> hits the fan? Or, or are we like at year 80? Like, when did this begin? And I think there's a case that could be made that like, maybe it started like end of world war two, you know, that's when perpetual war kind of started for America.
1: Yeah, that's when it paid off the most, right? So you could see the addiction kicking in.
0: Yeah, so maybe then that's then
1: bad luck for us because maybe we are in year eighty. Yeah, right. Just as <laughs> just as
0: I'm like careening into like my senior citizen years, that I'm gonna be, you know, living in a complete hellscape. Not that what we're living in now is all that awesome, but uh, it's crazy to think about. And I have to believe. I think, you know, part of it is that I have kids, but part of it I think is just like survival mechanism and maybe, maybe actually like some deep conviction. Like I do have to believe that the possibility exists that we can change for the better. I don't know how to live in the absence of that.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, it's never too late to become, you know, like we're saying, self-aware and more thoughtful about the way that, we're living and the ways that we're implicated right in all the violence and interconnected. I don't, I don't know that we have another choice really. At least I don't feel I have. Hmm.
0: Well, I know you have to go teach. Um, You've got to go shape the next generation of young minds, Um, (laughs) but I've really enjoyed uh, catching up with you and talking about all of this stuff. Um, You know, congrats on the book. And for bringing these ideas to the fore in like a really powerful work of fiction and for being so generous in conversation about them. I think there's like, like necessary stories to tell and necessary complexities to reckon with and to write about and to talk about. So really appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you for, yeah, for being such a generous interlocutor and actually making space for all the complexity, Brad. It's such a pleasure to talk to you.
0: All right, that is Azarine Vandervliet-Alumi. Her new novel, Savage Tongues, is available now from Haughton Mifflin Harcourt. You can find Azarine on the internet at azarenevandervlietalumi.com. I believe she's also on Instagram. Once again, the novel is called Savage Tongues. Go get your copy wherever books are sold. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Did you know that? All episodes, more than 700 episodes and counting, all available to you for free. The entire archive is right there for you for free. It's a listener-supported show. For as little as $1 a month, you can support this podcast over at patreon.com slash pod. If you like this program, if you get something from it, if you listen regularly, I hope you'll consider supporting the show for as little as a buck a month. There are different tiers, different levels of support. As you go up the scale, you can get stuff. T-shirt, tote bag, coffee mug. I will write you a postcard in my own handwriting. I will wish you happy birthday. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Patreon.com slash other ppl pod. If you have something to say to me, you can email me at letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Another great way to support the show is to rate it and review it over at Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or, or uh, Spotify, all of the above. That helps the show because then the algorithm bumps the show up. You know, I don't know how algorithms work, but it helps with the algorithm. It helps other people find the show it helps the show get new listeners you know what I mean so what else oh yeah the other people with Brad Listy app is a thing there's an app for this show this show has its own official app it's free go get the app there are t-shirts if you want to get t-shirts just go to the show's official website otherppl.com And I think that's it. I'm done.